This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Right now, let's check in on what is happening at that Liberal Cabinet retreat. Joining us now is our global news reporter in Ottawa, Abigail Beeman. Good morning, Abigail. Good morning. So what is going to be discussed at this retreat? Well, as will be no surprise to anyone, the top headline and really what's dominating most of the agenda is COVID-19. So the government discussing uh, how to protect the health of Canadians in the immediate near term as we see this, these case numbers rising. Uh, the government looking at how to prevent another national lockdown, but also looking at those supports for the areas that need help. So we've heard the Prime Minister speak publicly about, you know, housing, childcare supports, how to help Canadians. Canadians who need it in the short term, I, as well as, you know, looking at the at the long term, the government doesn't expect COVID-19 to go away uh, any time soon. Normally at a cabinet retreat, you would hear from some so-called special guests, and they usually come from a variety of different backgrounds, different expertise to brief the government on a variety of matters, uh, ambassadors as an example. No ambassadors here today. The, all of the special guests, well, first of all, will be here virtually, but second of all, they're all about COVID. So Dr. Theresa Tam will be briefing ministers. They will also hear from the chief science advisor, as well as two chairs of the two COVID-19 task forces. So as you can imagine, COVID dominating the agenda here. Also a chance for the government to speak about and finalize the throne speech, which is expected in a little over a week from now. Okay. Has the discussion changed as well about the possibility of a fall election, Abigail, with the choice of Aaron O'Toole as conservative leader? has Has that impacted talk at all? It's certainly still being talked about, I think, just as much as it was the the day before uh, Mr. O'Toole was elected. That's still the big question. And a lot of whether there will be a fall election comes down to what the Liberals choose to put in the throne speech. Is it going to be enough to satisfy at least one other opposition party, uh, you know, for the various things that they're they're all looking for? But the Liberals need the support uh, of another party in order to not have an election, in order to continue to govern. Uh, And that is why that throne speech becomes so critical. But there's certainly still a lot of buzz about whether uh, we will be going to the polls uh, this fall. Liberals also considering, you know, where public sentiment is in terms of whether they're ready for an election, as all the parties have to consider whether they're ready for an election. But a big question, too, is whether Canadians want an election right now. Oh, that's a huge question. I know we're dealing with that in BC (laughs) as well. I would probably answer no on that one for sure. Right. Um, So priority wise, then, is this, are they talking transition here in terms of like goal setting, right, for their agenda, the message that they want to send? 
That's right. And, and that really dovetails with the throne speech because that is what the throne speech does, right? Sets the agenda or the plan, uh, for parliament in the upcoming session. So a lot of overlap there. Uh, but, uh, but, but this, um, you do, you know, you often hear about long-term goal setting at, at, at a cabinet retreat or, or set goals for, for the coming months. It's really dominated by COVID-19, which the government feels is an immediate crisis. And so they are really looking at, at the short term here, perhaps more so than, than, other in other cases right all right abigail thank you so much thanks that's abigail Beeman, our global news reporter in ottawa covering the cabinet retreat that is going on today and tomorrow it starts this morning and this is for the federal liberal cabinet where they're getting together to talk about you know covid19 which will be the main focus and also on their economic program and messaging as they move forward. A lot of discussion, right, about what that fall session is going to look like, and we'll see what they say when they come out of this retreat. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, we've all been feeling it. You've certainly been seeing it if you haven't felt it. But that thick wildfire smoke that has been choking much of southern BC and up the coast for the last, what, four or five days now? And a lot of that is coming up from Washington and from Oregon State and California, where they are experiencing some of the worst wildfires they have ever seen there. In fact, the governor of Oregon, Kate Brown, said that it could be the greatest loss of human lives and property due to wildfire in that state's history. At least 10 people have died so far in Oregon, including a 13-year-old boy and his grandmother. Uh, for the latest on what has been going on in that state in particular, we're joined now by Dana Haynes, who's the managing editor of the Portland Tribune. Dana, thanks for joining us. Good morning, Simi. How bad of a situation is this right now in Oregon? Well, today it's a bit better, but it has been catastrophic. We've never seen fires like this. We have fires that are right on the periphery of our urban area and that's new for us we get we get summer forest fires every year but we've got some that are uh, i don't know 30 uh, something like 58 kilometers from downtown so we have this thick thick pall of smoke the sun never came out yesterday at all uh, here didn't not even like that red ball that sometimes you get there was nothing whatsoever Um, but the weather has turned we're getting an offshore flow and some of the evacuation notices in the perimeter around portland have been lifted now was it particularly dry was it lightning strikes was it human cause like what do we know about these fires there was a nasty wind that came in right around labor day it was very very fast east wind and we'd had very dry conditions before that Uh, we knocked down power lines now it's important to say that the firefighters have been in defensive mode. They've been trying to save the suburban towns and, and, and the rural communities. So we have not gotten to the part where, yet where they start doing the forensic research into the causes. So we don't know 100% what the causes are. But most of the fires started right about the time we had that nasty, nasty, dry east wind that knocked down so many power lines. The good news is that wind has stopped and now we're getting a flow from off the ocean. We had um, uh, actual fog in Portland yesterday, although the fog still smelled like smoke. No kidding. Yeah. Can you give us an idea, though, of what kind of devastation that you are seeing down there? You mentioned several towns. Yeah, actual urban uh, firefighting, which we've not seen uh, in our area before. Um, there are about 130,000 acres of the Mount Hood National Forest has burned. That's a tenth of the land area of Clackamas County. That's one of the three counties that makes up the Portland metropolitan area. One-tenth of it uh, burned. Um, 3,000 firefighters working on uh, around the state uh, on the 10 biggest blazes. Um, went just a little bit south and west of us, like 
if we were Vancouver, this would be about like where Surrey is sort of. Um, there was a 30, uh, there was a 58 kilometer long fire line wow. uh, where it ran north to south through the towns of Estacada, Molala, Colton, Scott, Scotts Mills and Lyons. Uh, the fire jumped the line into Estacada and got into the town. It was actual urban firefighting there. At Colton, they stopped it short of just the very edge of the town. At Molala, it got within five kilometers of the town. Whoa. In Scotts Mills, it got right up to the very edge and then stopped. So some of these cities, de- or these, these towns, I should say, definitely have been saved. Some of them we don't know yet because we haven't been able to get into them, but it looks like they probably were devastated. And how many people are out of their homes at this point, Dana? Well, there, um, there was a, some misinformation about that. 4,000 people were evacuated around the state. We kept hearing 500,000 people had been evacuated. A lot of media picked that n- number up. 500,000 people were under some level of warning about evacuations. There's levels one, two, and three, which is essentially ready, steady, go. Uh, level three is the one that says go and go now, and 4,000 people were under that. But as I say, uh, for instance, uh, in um, Olala, the, uh, in Forest Grove, and the Shehalem fire, all of those evac notices now were lifted late last night. And so some of those people today, as the sun rises, which it may or may not have yet, there's no way to tell here because hmm. of the smoke, but they're going to find out exactly whether or not their houses and their homes and their businesses and their schools survived. Boy, oh boy. Okay, what a picture you paint there. So, Dana, when things do settle down, when these fires do get under control, what kind of questions do you think there are going to be for the people in charge or or how, you know, Oregon kind of got in this situation? Um, uh, global warming is the answer to that question. There's, there can't be any question about it. We used to have relatively small fires that were isolated to the to the big forests here. Every year we would have those days when you could smell smoke and it would be nearby and you could hear that. But we've never had fires like this. California's got it. The state of Washington's got it. You guys have had the second or third worst uh, air pollution in the world yeah. in the last couple of days up there. Um, this is this is a, uh, a black swan event. This is something new that we have not experienced before. And there's no reason for us to think this is not the new normal. So the questions are going to be, if this is the state of the West Coast of, of North America now, how are we going to have to change what we do? Uh, we don't know the answers yet. Like in any black swan event, uh, the, the ramifications are unknowable. Uh, the future is unpredictable. So we don't know. Well, Dana, thank you very much for letting us know what you do. Yeah, please join us again. That's Dana Haynes, managing editor of the Portland Tribune, talking about the situation in Oregon, which is, as he points out, unprecedented right now. They they haven't started actually controlling any of these fires. They're still trying to save a lot of the towns, urban areas that are being threatened by these fires, unlike any that they have seen before in the state of Oregon alone. The governor of Oregon saying that this is likely the greatest loss of human lives and property due to wildfire in that state's history. And we, of course, are feeling just the wildfire smoke impact of that as well. This is Mornings with Simi. Just a reminder again about that visibility out there. It is not good, as Tim Maine was talking about, two parts of New Westminster where the streets are closed. Uh, we're keeping a close eye on the situation. It's all because of that fire uh, that was down at New Westminster Pier uh, Park there. And we're going to have updates for you coming up uh, in the next hour here on the show. Right now, though, let's talk about the homelessness situation. Remember on Friday, Vancouver City Council was supposed to have this special meeting to vote on the mayor's proposed plan while well, they listened to a whole bunch 
speakers, but the meeting was adjourned until this afternoon because so many people had signed up to speak. But we wanted to know more about what's going on from at the very like local perspective, boots on the ground. So joining us now is Union Gospel Mission's Jeremy Hunka. Good morning, Jeremy. Good morning, Simi. Now, what is the situation like at the Union Gospel Mission? I'm imagine because of social distancing, you can't, you just can't help as many people. I mean, we it's it's a really difficult, really heartbreaking situation right now. Um, we're seeing a lot more people come to us for help, and what that looks like is um, normally, you know, during the summer months at our emergency shelter, we don't. It's our it's our least busy time of the year. It's usually steady, but it's a little less busy than other times of the year when it's raining and people really need to get inside. Um, During 2019, during July and August, we only had a handful of turnaways. Uh, We're talking like fewer than 10 turnaways over those two months last year. This year in 2020, we've seen more than 130. So these are people's lives. These are people who are desperate and don't really have anywhere to go. So we are seeing an increase in people coming to us, and we believe in homelessness in general since the pandemic really struck. There's really not a question in our minds that things are getting worse in terms of the numbers of people on our streets. It's just we're seeing it on so many different levels in so many different places. Right. Is Are there also fewer places for the homeless to go? I was reading about how, well, there's no washrooms for them to use. There's no more facilities for them to go check in at, even just for the day. Gotcha, yeah. So, I mean, one of the things we're doing at UGM to make space for social distancing, our emergency shelter are 72 beds, which are typically, you know, on one floor in five different rooms. We've now spread that out further so it's on different floors because we need people to have more space for social distancing. So, um, and then when we do have people in our drop-in, like today, for example, or yesterday when the smoke is so bad and people who are homeless are at more risk because they have underlying health conditions, we unfortunately are somewhat limited in how many people we can actually have inside because of social distancing. And we've seen this play out for months. I mean, especially when things like community centers, libraries, restaurants, with those things all closed and other organizations, in fact, um, you know, had to limit how many places they had. So what people are seeing in terms of a, a visible increase in homelessness is partly to do with the fact that there are fewer places for people to go. So naturally, you're seeing that on your streets, and then also because we're seeing more people who are homeless, more people who are struggling. Yeah, that makes sense, right? We're going to have to do something about that too. Jeremy, thanks for uh, telling us all about it. Yeah, you bet. No problem. Thanks, Simi. This is Mornings with Simi. You go into space isn't what it used to be. There's so many private enterprises that are now involved, but Canada has always played a role in the international space race. But what does the future hold for our role? Well, that is for the new president of the Canadian Space Agency to deal with. And today is the first day on the job for Lisa Campbell, also the first woman to ever head the Canadian Space Agency. We had a chance to catch up to her earlier this morning to talk about the new job. Well, thank you so much for joining us this morning. First of all, congratulations on the new job. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be speaking with you. Now, is this something that you had been hoping to do? Is this something that you were chosen to do? How did this work out? 
it was a competitive process. So, yes, I applied, and um, I'm very grateful that the government's given me the honor to be in this role. I'm looking forward to working with the CSA team, a tremendous group of people. Now, the Canadian Space Agency has a long history. I grew up, you know, hearing about things like the Canada Arm, uh, the contributions that we've made to space programs. What is the, what is the future, do you think, for Canada in the space race? It's a very exciting time. We're seeing around the world governments and the private sector investing in what really is a new space economy, and there's a couple of areas. One is the speed of commercial satellite deployment, implementing faster communication technologies, and leading eventually to the onset of interplanetary missions. They're augmenting the role of data in space industries, and Canada's radar sat constellation mission is part of this trend. We've got a three-satellite configuration giving data for climate research, security, and commercial applications. Is that something that Canada has been very up-to-date on, that kind of marriage between public and private partnership? Canada's got um, a long history of working closely with the private sector so that we can have opportunities both for government purposes but also to grow our economy, which is even more important now. Canada's got to be part of uh, this new space-faring enterprise, and we see lots of opportunities for us for global Internet connectivity, for companies to see opportunities to support the Internet of Things. Uh, Go ahead, you were going to say something. Well, I was going to wonder, you mentioned these private entities. I was thinking of SpaceX and, you know, Richard Branson and all these private companies that are starting this up in the States. What kind of role could Canada play in helping these big private companies go to space? Well, nurturing innovation will have significant positive impacts for consumers and businesses as we strive for economic growth. The aerospace sector is a significant sector in Canada, and we see lots of opportunity here. Um, We work with something called the Strategic Innovation Fund, the Canada Foundation for Innovation, Innovation Solutions Canada, and other programs to contribute to competitiveness and expertise in our space sector. It is all about partnerships, though. Um, In February 2019, the government announced an investment of one Point nine billion over 24 years for the next generation of smart AI-powered space robotics for the U.S.-led lunar, gate, lunar Gateway. Our AI-based robotic system, Canada Arm 3, which you mentioned, is going to help tend the Gateway when it's uncrewed and also conduct science experiments. It's going to give us greater access to more parts of the moon, enable sustainability for human landers, and eventually develop capabilities to go to Mars. And so what do other countries or companies see Canada's role as? Like, what do they tap us for when it comes to looking at, you know, going to space? Well, as mentioned, we've got deep experience in space robotics, which we want to leverage. We've also got really good human capability, deep expertise, uh, people who are very good at this and very good at innovating uh, and being part of international teams. So we want to leverage our partnerships with counterparts in other countries because, as I mentioned at the outset, space spending by governments in the private sector has grown recently with ambitious interplanetary exploration goals and lots of scientific developments which will help us not only in space but in um, climate change, uh, security, and many commercial applications. So then not just technology, but will we be sending Canadian astronauts into space? We hope so. Uh, and so it's part of growing our expertise and being ready uh, when we get the call. It's, it's really about um, furthering knowledge and the public good. Space exploration and technology are at the epicenter of scientific development. It's increasingly crucial for our society because space science is a rich avenue because of the challenges it poses. It forces us to look up and out in really new ways.
how do we how do we select astronauts then? It's a rigorous but competitive process, and we're very fortunate to have uh, great schools, great institutions to tap into. And as you may be aware, we do a lot of work with educational institutions, mm-hmm. stimulating interest in space, making sure that we promote um, the STEM sector, uh, making sure that it's diverse and inclusive uh, so that we have a rich pool to draw from. So if there are kids out there who want to be an astronaut one day, what would you tell them to do? Oh, uh, reach for your dreams and your stars because uh, Canada is going to be part of this new space economy and we need everyone um, to support us in this really exciting new time. All right, Lisa Campbell, thank you. Thank you so much. Have a great day. That is Lisa Campbell. First day on the job for her as the new president of the Canadian Space Agency. This is Mornings with Simi. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. We've been updating you all morning long on how the pier fire in New Westminster is developing. And we know that authorities have said, listen, please don't go down there because they think the smoke from that fire is just adding to the problems with the air quality that we already have. And the fire in particular, they believe is quite toxic with all the creosote and asphalt and everything there. But we've already got a big fire problem here, at least a smoke problem. It's been lingering over the southern parts of BC for, what, four or five days now? And unfortunately, it's given us the distinction of having some of the worst air quality in the world. That is not something that we are used to here, but what kind of impact is it having on our health? Joining us now is Ken Reed, the Metro Vancouver Superintendent of Environmental Sampling and Monitoring Air Quality and Climate Change. Ken, thank you for being here. Oh, thank you. Good morning. How bad is it out there right now with the air quality? Yeah, so overnight we've seen a little bit of improvement in uh, fine particulate matter throughout the air quality monitoring network. Um, But the smoke is still there, and uh, at this point, we think uh, we will be remaining in the very high health risk category on the Air Quality Health Index, and that the advisory will continue through today. We've also been watching uh, wildfire smoke models quite closely to see when we think that this is going to start to change, and uh, it's a little bit unclear at the moment. We think through today, we'll see a little bit more improvement. Um, but it's still around right now, and we think it is going to stay around uh, at least to some extent for the next day and into tomorrow, um, but with some improvement along the way. Right, but what does it mean when you say it puts us in the very high health advisory index? Yeah, so it's it's uh, based upon the air quality health index, so that's a very high health risk. Um, so that's generally uh, suggesting that uh, the population is taking steps to protect themselves from the uh, wildfire smoke. So the best way for people to protect themselves is to uh, try to seek cleaner air if possible. So there may be some air-conditioned indoor spaces, Um, but certainly people will want to also be avoiding outdoor physical exertion during this time. Is that something that you're recommending that the people do is don't go for your jog, don't go exercising outside? Yes, 
that that's part of the recommendations that we have out as part of the air quality advisory, and that comes from our local health authorities and the BC Centre for Disease Control. And I, I should point out that uh, you had mentioned there that we have some of the worst air quality in the world right now. And um, while it is some of the worst air quality that we've experienced in our region um, over the last several decades, uh, I would point out that uh, there are, are certainly places that are being harder hit by wildfire smoke right now. And uh, in fact, the the uh, parts of BC that are being mo- most heavily hit right now are, are the Okanagan and the Kootenai region. So we're comparatively a little bit uh, cleaner air here in the lower mainland. Right, that's not saying much, right? When you look outside and see what it's like out there. Uh, you mentioned it hasn't been this bad in decades, but have we ever seen it this bad before in terms of wildfire smoke? Yeah, so if people can think back to uh, the summers of 2018 and 2017, We've certainly seen uh, similar levels right now compared to those wildfire uh, summers uh, where we had a lot of impact. So, uh, you know, the air quality changes a little bit during the event, um, but I would say that largely the impact that we're getting on air quality right now is quite similar to what uh, we had in those years. And, you know, unfortunately, air quality and climate change are integrally integrally linked, and we know that uh, climate change is going to cause longer, hotter in drier summers, so the future is one in which we see a greater risk of wildfires. Uh, smoky conditions like the ones that we're experiencing now might very well be uh, more likely to occur, and uh, these extreme events uh, are going to impact us more in the future. Now, I certainly recognize it, like I feel it when I go outside, but what, were some of, what are some of the symptoms, Ken, that people may have that may help them to recognize that, listen, you're being impacted by this? Yeah, so wildfire smoke can irritate the, the respiratory system for, for, for the general population. So people might notice uh, that they have uh, eye irritation or, or runny nose or sore throat or something like that. So people should certainly be aware of their own symptoms and, and how that might be related to the uh, current air quality and, you know, seek uh, uh uh, advice from their their medical provider uh, if necessary. Uh, so contact your doctor. Um, but uh, the recommendations I made a few minutes ago, I think, will also be helpful in, in trying to avoid the smoke. Okay, so another day or two, you think? So that's what we're we're looking at right now. Uh, this may be a, a, a slightly bigger change in the weather tonight with some from showers locally. Um, so it that may be helpful. Uh, we're not certain how much of the smoke is going to get cleared out in the next day. We know there will be some improvement, but the fires are still burning south of the border. So it is likely uh, that the change in weather is not going to affect that. So the kind of the risk of of future impacts from air quality um, from these fires is there right now. All right, Ken, thank you for your time. Okay, you're welcome. This is Mornings with Simi. One of the breaking news stories that we have been following this morning has to do with the Sea to Sky gondola and the cables being cut again for the second time in a little over a year. So joining us now to talk more about this is the Mayor of Squamish, Karen Elliott. Mayor Elliott, thank you for joining us. Good morning, Simi. When did you first hear about this? Uh, My phone rang quite early this morning. um, And uh, uh, yeah, uh, the head of our RCMP gave me a a call and let me know and, and Kirby phoned me as well. So yeah, hadn't had my morning coffee yet before um, hearing this terrible news. Yeah, terrible news. What do we know so far about what has happened? Um, well, 
we know the cable's down. It's been a little bit harder to assess this time around uh, the extent of the damage because of the smoke. So um, we haven't been able to get um, people up in a helicopter, but we imagine that it's similar to last time, which is there's there's cars that are still on the line and others that will have uh, hit the ground. Um, and uh, But we know that no one's been injured. Um, there was no one in the gondola, obviously, at the time, and um, and we're pretty sure there was no one on the trail that evening. Um, but, of course, that we'll double-check that and make sure that there was no one hiking the trail that may have been injured by this. Can you give us an idea of the loss to tourism? Like, how big of an economic driver is this for Squamish? No, it's... The Sea of Sky Gondola is important. You know, Squamish is known for its adventure activities. You know, if you're a mountain biker, a kiteboarder, a rock climber, you know about Squamish. But the Sea of Sky Gondola created access to, to our beautiful sound and, and the mountains around here. For those folks who, who want to experience the great outdoors but don't want to put in that kind of extreme effort. And so it brought a whole new group of citizens that we could share this, this beautiful valley with. And it's, so it's important. I mean... Hundreds of thousands of visitors got to experience the gondola and, and Squamish in a new way. Um, so we don't underestimate the impact that, that this will have, and especially um, heading into the winter. This was already going to be a tough winter for all of our tourism operators. And, you know, we're going to have to regroup as a community and think this through, and, and we'll do it together like we did last time. Yeah, are you concerned about the, the kind of the viability of, of once again kind of rebuilding the gondola? I spoke with Kirby this morning and I heard nothing but optimism. And he was like, I'll place an order for another cable today. So, you know, they're determined and the leadership in that organization, the staff that work there, they showed so much determination and resilience last time. And I have no doubt they'll approach this in exactly the same way. Um, And as partners in the community, we'll look for ways that we can support them. Now, I know a lot of people, once again, you know, when they heard this, thought, how can this still be happening? What do we know about the investigation? Like, who have you heard anything about why somebody would do this? I I still don't have any information on on motive or or why someone would do this. Certainly, um, there is a real sense of of, uh, determination. Um, I know that the investigation from the first incident has been active. <clears throat> and ongoing. Um, some of the, these investigations get complicated and, and they can take a long time. But this this person, if I'm going to assume, probably the same person has returned to the scene of the crime and the security system had been upgraded. I'm hopeful that there is more evidence so that we can bring someone to justice this time. And you are hopeful that it will be rebuilt once again? I am hopeful. That is the message I heard from the gondola this morning and um, I will take them at their word. All right. Uh, Mayor Elliott, thank you for your time this morning. Thanks for checking in with us. Oh, we're trying to find out what the heck is going on up with the Sea to Sky gondola there. For the second time in 13 months, the cable has been cut, uh, essentially just grounding some of the cars and just causing a huge amount of damage to that. Now, you question, as I do, wait a minute, what about cameras? Did they not install security cameras? What kind of precautions did they take when they rebuilt it earlier this year? Those are some of the questions that we uh, asked about when we caught up with the general manager of the Sea to Sky gondola, Kirby Brown. Our Nikki Reitmeyer spoke to him. When did you find out about this news and, and what was your reaction? Um, I, I got a call from my uh, my ops director um, very early this morning. Um, you know, and when your phone rings now, particularly at that time of day, you, you assume the worst. And uh, sadly, the worst was well, the worst was uh, was what was reality here today. You know, so 
in the early morning hours. Um, the exact same uh, situation occurred. Somebody climbed a tower uh, and uh, it cut the rope this time with great, what appears to be great experience. And, uh, um, you know, our security system sure is giving the RCMP uh, lots of media material to work with. They've got dog teams out there right now and uh, are, have been uh, on the highway uh, since it occurred uh, just a few minutes afterwards. So, um, you know, our, our hope now is that whoever this individual is and whatever their motivation is, that they end up in custody very quickly before they conduct another act like this and hurt somebody. We are pretty confident at this moment in time. Um, we cleared the line last night at 11 p.m., um, so we know there's nobody in the cabins uh, and from our security system. Um, we can tell that there's nobody in and about the line. So we're, we're confident that nobody's injured. Uh, and of course, our mission now is to make sure that we do what we now know what to do. We get the cleanup happening and uh, and get back uh, on our front foot here and get this thing rebuilt and reopened and with uh, hopefully somebody in custody and uh, some physical protection of the towers in place. Um, so that's what we're focused on. I mean, it's a, it's a gutting experience. And, uh, you know, uh, with nobody injured, you know, it's it's a different scenario. There's lots of hard things happening in the world today. So I don't want to overplay it, but i got to say, look in the eyes of my team. We've been through this once before. Good, caring people who love what we do and love our community. It's a, it's a tough one, no question about it. Undoubtedly. And what this individual may not realize is that after this happened the last time, you guys installed a big surveillance system, didn't you? We did, yeah. I mean, one of the most advanced in the world. And uh, we certainly, uh, again, he, whoever it was, did it with such knowledge that they clearly uh, had premeditated the act and, uh, and did it with the rapidity that, you know, uh, will make them stand out um, in a number of different ways through the RCMP investigation as they launch it. And what about the cost of all of this? Uh, I know it's happened once before. How will the cost be covered? I'm assuming you guys do intend to repair and move forward. Well, we do have an idea from last time. You know, it's, it's millions of dollars, um, and we are insured. Um, you know, uh, i got to say that my the calls this morning that I received from uh, CID we bank with um, and our insurance company, um, you know, we're incredibly hard. They're here to support us. Uh, our insurance company said, you're going to need a check to begin buying things. We'll have one to you right away. Our bank said, we have your back. Uh, we believe in your business and in you uh, and your management team. Uh, our owners are steadfast behind us. Obviously, they're gutted as well, but um, we, we do something really good here, um, you know, and we do very well. We're professional in our business. So whatever this individual's motivation is, we are not going to let one person and something really good for the people who work here, for our community, and for our industry. We are going to get back up on our feet, make sure this person gets off, protect those towers, lead our industry out of this dark time. All right, that's Kirby Brown, the general manager of the Sea to Sky Gondola. So some big takeaways from that is that they had installed a surveillance system after the gondola got cut the first time. One of the most advanced surveillance systems in the world. That's a direct quote from what he said there. So you can imagine they have a much better idea this time, or they should have a much better idea of what happened and who did it. And that will certainly help the investigation. RCMP are on scene this morning. And another um, important note from that, they will be rebuilding right away, they said. And they have a much better idea how to approach that this time as well.